somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world, where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice and imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 51 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a semi-regular podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for more information to leave feedback and you can even buy me a coffee to support the podcast. You can find us on Facebook as well, where it's always lovely to meet listeners and have a bit of interaction, so don't be shy. And however you might get in touch with me by email or Facebook or Twitter or through reviews and comments, I will always try to respond. The soundtrack for this week's episode is by Healing Muses and their album Reflections, which as usual is available on magnitude.com. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Spud Fellow by Seymour Jacklin Jim used to follow his grandfather up the field gathering potatoes. Grandpa would pull them up and leave them like gold nuggets glowing on the topsoil. Jim would come behind, pick them up and stow them in a trug that was big enough for a baby to sleep in. When the trug was about to overflow, he'd haul it to the edge of the field and tip it into a waiting sack. Jim struggled when the trug was nearly full, and he'd have to set it down every few yards and watch Grandpa's loose-limbed mechanical rhythm as he worked on up the line. Jim's work had rhythm too, as he tramped through the cycles of filling and emptying the trug until he'd lost count of how many times. He liked working with Grandpa. Grandpa treated him like a grown-up and didn't talk down to him like most of the other adults. Jim daydreamed that one day there would be a real gold nugget lying on the row. In his dream, he would take it to the bank and a big man with a tiny jeweler's loop screwed into his eye would declare it to be genuine and give him a million pounds. Then he'd buy a bicycle and cycle home. Jim, are you working today or daydreaming? Grandpa called. Jim tripped out of his reverie and looked up the line of freshly turned earth with a zigzag trail of blonde potatoes lying on top, freckled with dirt. Then he looked back to the sack, at the edge of the field, calculating if it was worth trekking over there now and emptying the load, or if he could persist for another row until he was close to it again. Not worth it, he decided, hefting the trug into the crook of his elbow and working on. 
Grandpa was tall and bent over, keeping his legs straight and planting one foot on either side of each row, pivoting his shoulders and swinging his arms over them. His big hands were like rakes that swept through the soil and clawed up the harvest. Jim's centre of gravity was obviously much lower, so he bent at the knees and squatted alongside while he picked. It was important not to squish the soil in the raised row and ruin the drainage. Grandpa said this was to save any need to plough the field. When he got to the end of this one, Grandpa was sitting under the hedge waiting for him. Jim joined him in the shade, and they sat in silence for a few moments, watching the insects dance in the warm air in front of them. Grandpa handed him the water bottle and let him drink first. Good work, Jim, said Grandpa. We're nearly done. Jim wasn't so sure. From his point of view, there still seemed to be half the field to do, and they had been working for a couple of hours. Why don't you put the rows the other way, Grandpa? Then they would be shorter, said Jim. I could, said Grandpa. Do you think that would make the job easier? Yes, said Jim. We could have a few more breaks. Grandpa looked like he was giving it some thought. He measured the rows off into the distance before answering. Only one problem I can see with that, Jim. You see how the land slopes, and this side is a bit higher than that side? Grandpa chopped the air with his left hand and then his right. Yes, said Jim. Well, if the rows were running downhill, where do you think the water will go when it rains? Jim thought for a bit. Downhill, he said eventually. Yeah, I reckon so, and I figure it's going to go downhill very fast, because of each of those rows is going to turn into a miniature riverbank, and the water will rush over the poached soil in the middle and take some of the goodness away without properly feeding the potatoes. Jim saw it straight away. It sounded like a bad thing to happen. Grandpa was so clever like that. He thought of everything. He looked at Grandpa, and they swapped a smile. What do you reckon, said Grandpa? If we have the rows going this way, the water's going to go nice and slow, and the potatoes will thank us for all the goodness it brings. Jim looked at the haul of potatoes in the truck, and put on his best potato voice. Thank you, Grandpa and Jim, he said. It was time to get going again. Jim and Grandpa kept working until lunchtime. Then they walked back to the house. Grandpa carried the trug with some of the morning's harvest in it. Guess what's for lunch, he said. Parsnips, said Jim. The coolness of the flagstones and slate blue walls of Grandpa's kitchen was a sweet relief from the glaring midday heat outside. Grandpa stood at the sink and washed the potatoes, handling each of them tenderly in his knotty fingers. The sun through the window glistened off the silver stubble on his chin. Jim fetched them some plates and cutlery from the cupboards, and then went out to the garden to get some herbs for them. Anything you like, just get me a good handful and shake off the bugs, said Grandpa. Jim came back to the kitchen with a posy of hyssop, thyme, calantro, fennel, and a broadleaf he didn't know the name of. 
he'd chosen the ones that would leave their aroma on his hands. Good choice, said Grandpa. Then he waved the broad leaf in front of Jim's face. And you're a brave man to bring the horseradish. I didn't know what it was, said Jim. Grandpa broke off a corner of the leaf and gave it to him. Try. Jim bit into it and the heat spread over his tongue and up through his nose, making his eyes water. Delicious, Jim huffed, trying to get as much air into his mouth as he could. Grandpa's kitchen was earthy and cool like a cave. The shelves were populated with jars, crockery and brass utensils that had the burnish of long use catching the greeny light that came through the open door and the window over the sink. The potatoes were steaming over a chattering pan and the ducks in the yard chortled among themselves. It was a moment that neither Jim or his grandfather had any wish to hurry. When the potatoes were done, they feasted, slicing through the golden skins flecked with herbs and doused in olive oil into the steaming white meat within. Grandpa suggested they go back and finish the field off in the afternoon and asked Jim what he thought of the idea. It sounded good to Jim. He wasn't ready to go home. It was too noisy there, with the twins yelling and mum and dad trying to keep order. Whenever he was at home, Jim felt himself bunching up against the noise and chaos of his family. Like a hedgehog. A little ball with prickles keeping himself to himself. They worked the second half of the field quickly and quietly. Although the time seemed short, when they came to the last few rows, the sun was getting low enough to put the edge of the field into the shadow of the adjoining woodland, and it felt pleasantly cooler. Jim's shoulders were beginning to complain, and his legs felt like they didn't belong to him anymore. They just kept going with a mind of their own. He'd become absorbed in keeping up and finishing the job, so there was no daydreaming about gold nuggets or how he might spend a million pounds. But then he saw something that broke his cadence. He saw a tiny face looking up at him from the soil. A funny sort of face. In fact, it had a wide, laughing smile, and its eyes were tight shut with mirth. Jim couldn't help himself laughing out loud. The expression was infectious. He'd found misshapen potatoes before. Some looked like strange animals. Others were just too bizarre to submit to the imagination. But this face was undeniable and somehow perfect in every detail, down to the wrinkles at the sides of the eyes and the little dents in the bulbous nose that went for nostrils. He picked it up and it kept laughing up at him from his palm. Hello, he said. The potato didn't reply, but seemed utterly delighted to meet him, of course. He placed it carefully on top of the others, and hurried to catch up Grandpa, who had already turned and was coming back down the next and final row towards him. As Grandpa came level with him, he couldn't wait. Look what I found, he said, holding the potato face up. Grandpa straightened his back then crouched down to Jim's level for a better look. Look who you found, he chuckled. It's a face, said Jim. 
It's a spud fellow, said Grandpa. He's the happiest spud fellow I ever saw. What's a spud fellow? asked Jim. Grandpa pinched the top of the potato in Jim's fingers and turned the face to look directly at him. This is a spud fellow, he said. They don't show up very often, but when they do, it's usually for a reason. I don't think we should eat it, said Jim. Oh no, I would hang on to him and see what happens, said Grandpa. But you let me know if he starts to turn green, because that means we need to plant him back in the soil. Come on, we're nearly done. They finished the field, and the two sacks at the side of the field were full. They would need to be sorted out tomorrow. Jim stowed the spud fellow in his pocket. Grandpa said Jim had better get home for his tea, so they walked along for a little way before they got to the crossroads and said goodbye. Grandpa shook Jim's hand with a real grown-up handshake and told him he'd done a great job and thanked him for his help. His whole body was beginning to ache, but Jim felt merry with the day's work well done and walked lightly, stepping on his own shadow, which drew away from him in the direction of home. He was hungry. Jim's house was in the village, an old mining village with red brick terraces of company housing backing onto narrow alleyways where neighbours still strung up their washing and cats patrolled along the back walls. His family lived on the first terrace you came to. An assortment of telephone lines suddenly swooped in and knotted themselves on a pole at the end of the street, signalling the edge of a buzzing, connected world of brick boxes, inhabited by glaring lights and human chatter. Jim turned down the back alley. It was full of dirty puddles that now reflected the low light. While the fronts of the houses had little to distinguish them, the characteristics of their inhabitants spilled out the back. Sheds and outhouses leaned over, shedding flakes of paint, or stood up neatly bare, or embellished with ivy, and sometimes roses or honeysuckle. Abandoned toys, pieces of rusting scrap, garden gnomes, whirligigs, flowerpots, washing lines and dog kennels, all told their own story. Jim's backyard was the one with the frame of a child's swing and a couple of wooden planters where Dad was attempting to raise beans and squashes. Dad was in the kitchen with the back door open to let out the steam from a huge pot on the stove. He waved through the window. Dinner smelt good and Jim's stomach began to roar with anticipation. Here comes the worker ready for his dinner, said Dad. Jim suddenly felt shy. He never knew what to do when attention was drawn to him. Dad was at the sink washing some dishes from the ever-present pile so that they could have something to eat off. He looked a lot like Grandpa, standing there, but he wasn't as calm as Grandpa. Dad was sweating and clattering the crockery. The strip lighting in the kitchen rendered everything bright and shadowless. It was humid. What are you cooking? he asked. Chicken casserole, said Dad. That smells so good, said Jim. His mouth was replicating the juicy flavour. I'll give you a shout when it's ready, Dad said. 
The twins were quiet for once, playing in the front room. Jim took off up the stairs, climbing them three at a time. Mum's study door was shut. Jim went to his room and sat on the bed. He took out the spudfellow and looked at it again. What's so funny? he asked it out loud. Whatever it was, it was infectious. Jim let himself laugh quietly. He didn't want to be heard. But then the joy broadened inside him, like when Dad put his foot down in the car and the surge of speed left his stomach behind. Jim threw himself back on his pillow and laughed with his whole body. It felt good and powerful. It felt like a warm shower, a burst of sunlight, bubbles foaming at the foot of a waterfall. And the nonsense of laughing at nothing in particular made the whole joke so much more riotous. Jim, are you all right? Mum was standing in the doorway. Jim froze. Just laughing, he said. He felt shy again. He wanted Mum to get the joke, but she wouldn't understand. He slipped the spud fellow under his pillow. That's lovely, she said. Dinner's ready. She checked him as he fled out of the door. Give me a kiss, she said. Her sun was glowing, and suddenly it seemed as if it was the most cheerful thing that she'd seen all day. Jim gave her a hasty peck on the cheek, and then skipped out of reach. Meal times were usually fraught. Jim usually tried to eat as quickly as possible, focusing on his plate. But sometimes he'd get drawn into the twins and their drama. Today was no different. His parents asked him about his day, and they kept being interrupted. But Jim felt like it was happening far away. Inside, he still had a fountain of laughter, and he kept seeing the spud fellow's face. That night, as he burrowed into his bedclothes, the cool sheets moulded over his aching legs. Jim rolled on his side and pulled his knees up towards his chest. He liked being a hedgehog when he slept. He found the shape of the spud fellow under his pillow with the tips of his fingers and sunk into a delightful haze of merriment, quietly chuckling himself to sleep. The next morning was bright and Jim emerged from his cocoon of sleep slowly. The sun was falling across his quilt. He was a giant, sleeping under snowy hills for a thousand years. Their softness collapsed into him like cream. Shall I wake up or go back to sleep for another hundred years? He didn't want to move. He was still aching from the activity of the previous day. As far as he cared, this moment could last all day. It didn't, of course. One of the twins set up a sharp wail, piercing his daydream, and then he heard Mum stomping up the stairs to see what the trouble was. Jim searched by feeling under his pillow until he found the spud fellow. He took it out and held it above him as he lay there and turned its face towards him. At once, it had the same effect on him as it had yesterday. What a funny face! It seemed funnier than ever. He snorted with glee. He lay for a moment, deciding what would be the funniest way to get out of bed. Watch this, 
he said to the spud fellow, putting it down alongside him. He tucked his arms in and then rolled his whole body to the edge of the mattress and let himself fall with a wallop on the floor. <laughs> that, that was fun. It was certainly silly, and it hurt a bit. But then, falling down was always hilarious when someone else did it, so why not laugh at oneself? Having made such a grand start, Jim next put his mind to getting dressed for the day in the funniest way he could think of. He made sure the spud fellow could watch the whole process as he tried to pull on his shorts while leaning himself upside down against the wall. They were having a right old time, and it was only eight o'clock in the morning. He left the spud fellow on his clothes dresser and went downstairs for breakfast with his cheeks pulled up into a cheeky grin. Dad was brewing a cup of coffee to take up to Mum. The twins seemed to have calmed down. Jim bolted down his toast and marmalade. He felt like a working man with important things to do. He wanted to go back over to Grandpa's today. Dad thought that was a good idea, but reminded him to wash up his breakfast things in the sink first. Jim bounced up the stairs again and went to his room. The sun was blasting through the windows, reminding him that the sky and fields were waiting for him. He stood in front of the spud fellow again, and it laughed up at him from the dresser. Jim pulled a frown and said, Very seriously, what about you? Are you coming too? He didn't want to leave it here where it could get into the wrong hands. He didn't want to hide it, because it seemed desperately unfair to put the spud fellow in the dark all day. If he took it with him, he ran the risk of losing it or falling on it or something but he settled on taking it anyway. On his way back out, he passed the open door of Mum's office. She was hunched up and looking at her computer, with one hand stuffed into her hair like an oversized comb. Poor Mum, trying to concentrate with the twins going off like sirens all day, always hunched in front of the computer or curled around the phone. Bye Mum, I'm going to Grandad's again said Jim. Mum looked at him, twisting in her chair. The light of the screen caught the side of her face, so it looked even more pale. It was as if the screen was pouring whiteness into her face. Good boy, she said. Give Grandpa my love. Mum was tired. Her face didn't move much when she spoke, just her mouth. Jim wanted to help. He had a sudden idea. He came closer to her chair and brought the spud fellow out of his pocket. Look what I found yesterday, he said. Oh, what a funny face, said Mum. The rest of her face came to life in a smile. Grandad called it a spud fellow, said Jim. Mum started giggling. Do you think you could keep an eye on him for me, if he could sit on your desk? Of course, it would be nice to have company. Mum propped the spud fellow in front of her keyboard. They were all laughing together. Mum gave Jim a squeeze around the waist, and he said goodbye. Sarah heard the door close as Jim left the house. The familiar household and neighbourhood noises of a morning seeped into the space. The whine of the neighbour's vacuum cleaner rose and fell, muffled by the thin walls. 
birds flapped and fussed in the yard. Nick was teasing the twins who, for now, were giggling. She closed the door of her study gently. She needed to prepare for a phone call. Her eyes went straight to the screen as she opened a few files and began to skim through them with her lips moving ever so slightly as she read. The spud fellow watched her with its fixed expression of utter amusement. It seemed all the more entertained by how oblivious she was to its gaze. She forgot about it until she was taking a sip of coffee and spotted it over the rim of her cup. It caught her in mid-swallow and she couldn't stifle the snort of laughter and splattered coffee all over her keyboard. Oh no, look what you made me do, she giggled, reaching briskly for a tissue to mop it up. The spud fellow thought the whole thing was uproarious. It's not funny, she chided, but it was, and Sarah had not possibly laughed with such abandon since last Christmas, when Nick had accidentally loosed a champagne cork that ricocheted into the bread sauce. She tried to compose herself for her phone call, but it was no good. Every time her mirth subsided, she caught the eye of the spud fellow and corpsed again. Eventually, she put a tissue over the spud fellow's face. You have a nice little rest for now, she said, and reached for the phone. She managed to be serious for the phone call, but was increasingly distracted by a crescendo of wailing from the twins downstairs and Nick's exasperated appeals for calm. When she'd finished the call, her eyes came back down to rest on the tissue on top of the spud fellow. Peekaboo, she said, pushing it slightly aside. Suddenly, she had an idea. The twins were partial to a game of peekaboo, and it usually distracted them successfully, although it was far too labour-intensive for an adult to sustain. She picked up the spud fellow and carried it downstairs wrapped in the tissue. She passed Nick, who was rummaging in the cupboard under the stairs, doubtless looking for something to entertain the children. The twins were in the front room, amongst a mess of coloured toy blocks. Seth was crawling between them like an obstacle course, while Tia sat in the middle with her screaming face and lunged at him repeatedly, trying to knock him off balance. Hey, she interrupted them, look what I've got here. Seth and Tia stopped and blinked at her. Sarah knelt and held out her hand with the wrapped-up spudfellow. The twins put their faces close. Then she tweaked the tissue aside, whispering, Peekaboo! Instantly, their red, streaked faces broke into wide smiles and a torrent of giggles. Seth threw himself onto his back and rolled on the floor with glee. Tia tried pulling her face at the spudfellow and made herself laugh all the more. Sarah kept holding the spudfellow at eye level to the twins, until Seth made a grab for it. She had not thought beyond this in her plan. Perhaps it had been too successful. The twins could go over the top with silliness, or become a maelstrom of tantrums if she tried to take it away. She looked around for a place to put the spud fellow, in plain sight, 
but out of reach. Ah, the mantelpiece. Listen, you two. He can stay with you here if you play nicely, and he doesn't want to be touched, she added, trying to keep the laughter inside of her and speak firmly. She nestled the spudfellow up between the candlesticks. The twins knew they were not supposed to play with things on the mantelpiece, and it was out of their immediate reach. Their eyes stayed fixed on the spudfellow. As Sarah backed out of the room, they were both standing in front of the fireplace, bouncing on their heels and giggling. Nick pulled his head out of the cupboard as she passed him. Well done, what did you do? he asked. Jim's magic potato, was all she said. Her face was starting to hurt from all the exercise. It was a relief to return to the calm of her desk, but the merriment still fluttered inside her like scudding leaves in the wind. The rest of the day, there was no more drama from the twins. They seemed to have fallen in love with the spudfellow, to the point of being in every way concerned for his well-being, and determined that he was an important addition to the family. When Sarah broke for lunch, she found Nick and the twins capering in the living room, putting on some sort of comical performance for his benefit. For a moment, she glimpsed something much closer to what she'd dreamt that family life would be. All they needed now was for Jim to be with them. Jim and Grandpa had started their working day by fetching yesterday's haul back to the barn in the wheelbarrow, and spreading the crop out on the dark, cool floor of the old cow byre where they would keep for months. The smell of soil clung to their hands and clothing. I'm turning into a spud fellow, thought Jim. What's making you smile so much today, Jim? asked Grandpa. Jim was about to talk about the spud fellow, but when he opened his mouth, something else blurted out. Sometimes that happened as if another thought was waiting in his mouth and jumped out before he could say what he meant to. Have you ever found treasure in a field, Grandpa? Yes, every day. What grows in a field is treasure, said Grandpa. No, I mean like a gold nugget or something. Grandpa straightened up and looked at the sky. I found a few things like door hinges, old medicine bottles, even a few coins, but never a gold nugget. That would be something, though, don't you think? We can keep looking, said Jim. They were tromping their muddy feet towards the house now, and Jim dropped the subject. Something in him was stalling over trying to explain how the spud fellow had made everything so entertaining, but it tickled him just thinking about it. When Jim arrived home a few hours later, pushing the back door open into the kitchen, the brightness and warmth of the house swamped over him very suddenly, along with the sound of laughter. Mum had Seth in her arms, and Dad was balancing Tia on his hip while he searched through the kitchen cupboards. All their faces were red and shiny. Jim! The twins greeted him, pointing and giggling. Mum blew him a kiss. Jim was fighting to get his muddy shoes off. He took his time, as it gave him a few moments to adjust to the scene. Everyone was so jolly, 
Anyone would think it was Christmas. When he stood up, he saw the spud fellow on the kitchen table, balanced in an egg cup, a comical Humpty Dumpty sailing in a barrel on a checkered tablecloth sea. We've been having fun here with your friend, said Dad. The spud fellow's ludicrous face had been in Jim's mind all day, but under the kitchen light, it captured him afresh. Jim smiled so hard he could feel his cheeks bunching up. Then he bubbled with laughter, forgetting his work-weary, aching arms and his intention to go and hide in his room until dinner time. There was something on the stove giving off the succulent aroma of golden fried onions and piquant tomatoes. Jim sat in one of the chairs, and Mum seated Seth next to him, asking him to keep an eye on his brother while she laid the table. Jim tried to make up a potato joke. Why did the potato scream? he said. Because the dog ate him, said Seth. He wasn't old enough to understand jokes. No, because he stubbed his potato, said Jim. It didn't matter. It was extremely funny. When they stopped to breathe between fits of laughter, Seth had a go. Why did the dog eat the potato? Jim thought for a moment, but it was too long for Seth, who blurted out, Because it was hungry! This non-joke was even funnier than a joke. The boys nearly fell off their chairs. In the same vein, the evening continued. They all had a whale of a time. Nobody grizzled or lost their temper, and the spud fellow held court in the midst of it all, beaming with mirth. When the time came, the spud fellow helped Dad and Mum to put the twins to bed, exhausted with glee. Jim was tired too, and followed soon after, taking the spud fellow with him. He heard Mum say to Dad that they hadn't had an evening like that for decades. The next morning, Jim woke to the sound of laughter. It sounded like the twins were galloping up and down the landing. Then there was a knock on his bedroom door, and it opened just enough for him to see their cherub faces. Where's Potato? said Tia. Jim had the spud fellow under his pillow. He felt for it. He's hiding, he said, instantly regretting it as Seth pushed Tia into his room yelling, Hide and seek! They were suddenly into his wardrobe and under his bed like terriers on the scent. So much for having a lion. Jim kept his hand closed over the spud fellow as he got up and managed to feed the twins with misdirection and send them off downstairs. When he looked again at the spud fellow, it seemed to be thrilled about all the commotion. It's going to be one of those days, said Jim out loud to it. It was something he'd heard grown-ups say, but he didn't really know what he meant by it. One of those days, indeed, turned out to be one of those days drenched with late August sun that poured through the windows and warmed the walls. The wholesome scent of cut grass loitered in the air. The back door of the kitchen was standing open when Jim got downstairs. He was buoyant. His senses touched everything with delight. 
The big red teapot radiated a warmth he could almost feel on his face, and he caught the comforting tang of the tawny brew as Mum poured it into a mug. She was beaming. She went to the doorway and stood there in the sunlight, with her eyes closed and her hands wrapped around the mug. Dad came in with a twin under each arm. These two want potatoes for breakfast, he announced. They squealed and pedalled their legs in the air like a pair of piglets. Dad started swinging them round, and Jim used the distraction to pose the spudfellow back in its egg cup on the table. Jim had planned to go over to Grandpa's again as usual, but he felt in no hurry to escape from the house for a change. It was raucous all right, but he was in the mood for it, and rather in the midst of it this morning. Everybody was either laughing or beaming or trying to better one another's antics. Mum was working, but took her breaks downstairs. Jim dallied. Then Dad got a call about having to go out on a job in the afternoon, and Mum asked Jim if he felt like stopping in to keep an eye on the twins while she was busy. He did. They all became merrily absorbed in building an elaborate fortress for the Spudfellow with whatever they could find. From that day, the Spudfellow was adopted into the family. Just like each of them, he had his own routines. He slept under Jim's pillow, attended family meals on his egg cup throne, kept the twins entertained, sometimes kept mum company at her desk. Even when he was out of sight, Jim noticed that his laughter was closer to the surface, and he was apt to see the funny side of things. Mum and Dad noticed too, and the twins kept their sunny sides up. Jim forgot that the summer holiday would be over quite soon and he'd be going back to school, until Mum reminded him about it. He'd hoped that the Spudfellow would be able to come with him and boost his popularity with the other kids but he'd noticed that the funny face seemed to be shrinking and pulling the skin into more wrinkles. At the same time, the cheeks were beginning to show spreading blotches of dark green underneath. Grandpa had said something about this, and Grandpa was coming to tea. He'd know what to do. That evening, when the amber low light was gilding the brickwork and pushing the shadows deeper into the little square of yard behind the house, Jim was taking a few moments by himself, sitting on the back step and unpicking a bird's nest of knotted tangle from a piece of string and humming to himself when Grandpa arrived at the back gate. He was wearing an old flat cap and his light blue canvas jacket with the sleeves slightly too short that left his bony wrists exposed. It was his smartest look, but still workwear. One hand clutched a burlap sack by the neck, and Jim could see it held a cache of potatoes with their skins shining through the weave. Evening, Jim, said Grandpa, touching the tip of his cap. Hi, Grandpa, said Jim. He was working the loop of the knot earnestly with his fingernails. Grandpa's shadow fell on the step beside him. I can see you're busy, said Grandpa. I'm a knotologist, said Jim. You study knots? Yeah, I'm the best at undoing them. 
Grandpa set his bag down and crouched down, squinting at Jim's work. That looks like a tough one, he said. Jim grunted with the effort of pulling. You know what every great notologist needs, said Grandpa. Jim looked up. Here, Grandpa held out his hand flat. In his palm lay an odd-looking oval penknife that had a short blade folded on one side and a fat, pointy bit on the other. What's that? A marlin spike, said Grandpa. It's just the tool for a tricky knot. It will save your fingernails. Grandpa unfolded the spike and handed it to Jim. It was heavy. Grandpa showed him how to push the point into a tight loop on the knot and work it in so that the loop loosened. Suddenly it was so easy. See how you get on with that. Be careful you don't spike yourself, said Grandpa, patting Jim's shoulder. He stood up and went into the house. Jim made short work of the tangled string with the help of the marlin spike, which felt stout and had a gratifying weight fitting comfortably in his hand. He determined to ask for one of his own come Christmas. The sound of laughter drew him back inside. Grandpa was sitting at the kitchen table and leaning back in his chair with his legs longwise underneath at full stretch and his cap off. The rest of the family were leaning in towards the spudfellow the centre of attention on the table. Seth and Tia's eyes were just over the height of the table, and their little hands were holding on to it. Grandpa's laugh was like pinching a squeaky toy stuck in his throat. His face puckered into hundreds of lines, but his eyes glittered out from them. This was quite a find, Jim. You've got a good one here. Grandpa chuckled. Look at him, though, Grandpa, said Jim. He's getting old. Grandpa frowned, although he didn't stop smiling. Excuse me, sir, Spudfellow, he said, picking it up gently, then bringing it close to his face. Seth and Tia giggled. Ah, yes, said Grandpa. He rubbed a twiggy thumb over the Spudfellow's cheek. You see, he has the greening glow about him here. It's the life inside him that wants to come out, but he has to go into the ground for that to happen. The greening glow, Jim repeated, peering at the spudfellow's skin, where the tinge of green was ripening from underneath it. People have that too, eventually, Grandpa added. Jim looked sideways at his face, but Grandpa caught the look and grinned at him. Grandpa was wrinkled, like the potato, but Jim couldn't see any green. The best thing we can do for our friend is to plant him in the soil, said Grandpa, cheerfully. The rest of the family seemed suddenly serious, as if hearing some grave news. This was the moment they hadn't really wanted to think about. Jim had made up his mind to do the right thing. Whatever Grandpa said was best. Is Spudfellow going to bed? asked Tia. Yes, said Jim. It felt like his decision to make. Bedtime, yelled Seth, pointing a stubby finger at the potato. Everybody laughed. Where shall we put him, Jim? asked Grandpa. It seemed obvious that there was a good supply of soil in Dad's planters in the backyard, 
and Jim was warmed by the thought that the spud fellow would be growing right close to the house, a few steps away from the kitchen, where they'd all had some of the best times of late. Grandpa put the spud fellow into Jim's palm and led their little band, Jim, Tia, Seth, Mum and Dad, out the back door. It felt like an adventure. Jim knelt down next to Grandpa in front of the planter, and Grandpa pulled a clod of the soil aside to make a little hole next to one of the withering squash plants. Pop him in, he said. The twins leant over with their faces bright and close as Jim snuggled the spudfellow into the hole. They were giggling. It was quite as if they were hiding some treasure. The spudfellow looked up at them, but Seth reached in and rolled it onto its side. He sleeps over like this, he said. For some reason this was absolutely hilarious, and to a chorus of night-nights and goodbyes, Grandpa patted the soil back over the top of the potato, tucking it in. That's tidy, he said, unfolding himself upright like a crane about to take flight. Mum squeezed Jim's shoulder as if he needed to be comforted, but really his glee was undiminished. It was fish fingers for tea. Seth and Tia were ecstatic about this, and for once the repeated references to fish having fingers was amusing. There was clatter and chatter as Mum served onto their plates. The golden bread-crumbed strips were lined up, alongside perspiring green beans and a little company of pale potatoes and they were all ready to feast. I think we should have a moment of gratitude that the spud fellow came into our lives, said Dad in his most serious voice, taking Mum's hand. Jim bowed his head and watched the steam rising from the boiled potatoes with butter collapsing into them. I could sit here for a thousand years, he thought. 